the words of Ophelia in Shakespeare's Hamlet, we know what we are, but not what we may be, rings especially true for teens and young adults, many of whom are still piecing together their identity and figuring out who they are. You know, that period in our lives has spawned an entire Hollywood subgenre, the coming-of-age movie. Well, today on The Morning Shift, we talk with the director of the film, Henry Gamble's Birthday Party, which tackles the theme of identity through the lens of faith. Then WBEZ's Jennifer White brings us the details of another personal journey. It's a new show at Chicago's National Veterans Art Museum that tracks the artist's evolution from a war-obsessed kid to a senior airman in the U.S. Air Force. Plus, identity plays a big role at our jobs. We'll talk to an author who argues that including disabled people in the workforce is crucial to companies' success. It's The Morning Shift on WBEZ with me, Tony Sarabia. employees with intellectual disabilities like Down syndrome can improve a company's productivity. Now, that may sound counterintuitive, but it's something our next guest has been proven time and again at big companies like Canon, Walgreens, and FedEx. Deborah Rue is author of the forthcoming book, Uncovering Hidden Human Capital, How Leading Corporations Leverage multi Multiple Abilities in Their Workforce. She's an expert on how businesses can thrive by hiring people with mental, physical, and psychological disabilities. She knows the challenges the disabled face personally. Her 28-year-old daughter, Sarah, has Down syndrome, and professionally, 80% of the engineers at her first company, a tech startup, had disabilities. Now, when I sat down with her last week, one of the first things I wanted to know was how much ground people with disabilities have been able to make over the last few decades when it comes to finding and holding on to jobs. Unfortunately, it hasn't changed as much as we'd like it to. The unemployment rate for people with severe disabilities Mm -hmm. are still in the 70s, the 70 percent, which is, you know, it's really horrific, especially considering the abilities and the talents and the innovations that people with disabilities bring to the workforce. And many people with disabilities have invisible disabilities. You might not even realize you're talking to a person with a disability. You know, when it comes to the the lack of people with disabilities in the workforce, how much of that do you attribute to ignorance among employers, but also also fear? When I say fear, I guess that touches on, you know, if I hire someone with a disability and, and they're not up to the task, can I fire them? So right. we could take both of those separately, the ignorance and the fear. Well, and I think a lot of it is people just don't understand, Mm -hmm. you know, so definitely ignorance. But I think fear, especially here in our beautiful United States, is is really, really a big one. And, you know, really, you're going to fire somebody with a disability? What kind of monster are you? Well, wait a minute. We have to be careful with that because we can't say to employers, hire qualified people with disabilities. And if they don't do their jobs, don't ever fire them because that that isn't the way the workforce works. It seems like that would almost be an insult to the person getting the job because you're saying, you know, you're putting their disability above everything else, it seems like. Very, very well said. Yes. And it should always be the person before the disability. And, you know, I have hired many people with different types of disabilities, and I've actually fired people with disabilities as well. But when I fired them, Mm -hmm. I, I certainly am a compassionate employer. And so I made sure that I, you know, worked with them to see if we could correct the problems and could we do it. I did all the normal HR things you would do to try to prevent the person from being fired all the way to, at the end, the best thing was going to be for everybody for this person to be let go. So I'm wondering, Deborah, what are some of the, um, what are some of the talents and innovations of people with, with disabilities that we might not see at first? Well, there has been so much innovation that have come from people with disabilities mm-hmm. um, it, through the years. You look at a Stephen Hawkins, who now feels that we're going to be able in the future to tap into black holes for our fuel and our energy needs. And, of course, he's an extreme example because he's so brilliant. 
brilliant. But many people with autism are currently in the workforce and they just might not be self-disclosing or self-identifying. And in the innovation, for example, using autism, people with autism, they're not broken. They just use different parts of their brain. And the advantages to an employer is for us all not to think exactly the same. And so the problem solving, the innovative skills that we see for many, for many people with disabilities, because partially the world is not accessible to them. And so they're natural problem solvers because they almost don't have a choice. Yeah, it's almost like <laughs> we forget that because of a, 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 whatever the disability is, they do have to uh, maneuver, if you will. So right. they're, they're always uh, faced with challenges that a lot of us aren't. Right. Like, wait a minute, 25 years of the Americans with Disability Act, and yet I still not, cannot come into your restaurant and eat dinner, and hopefully I won't have to go to the restroom while I'm in your restaurant. Because So there's still a lot of work to do to be fully included. And so the, coming from a long history of corporate America background, mm-hmm. we want problem solvers. We want innovation. We want team players. We want loyal employees. You get that when you employ people with disabilities. Yeah, what what are some of the other benefits of having a workforce with uh, people with, you know, different abilities. Well, some of the work, some of the the studies and the research that I did for the book, um, I found very interesting. You take someone like my daughter with Down syndrome mm-hmm. and, you know, I never would say to an employer, hire somebody that's not qualified to do your work ever. Always hire somebody that's qualified to do the work, but please consider that people with disabilities might be very great candidates to work for you. And so we've seen sometimes when employees like my daughter with intellectual disabilities are included in the workforce, it makes the rest of the workforce feel very proud to be part of that employment, that that employer, sort of the employer of choice. I guess there's a specific story that has to do with the Chicago company, Canon? Yes, yes. Canon... Um, I'm a big fan of Canon, use a lot of their products because I believe in supporting the companies that support families like mine. And Canon uh, is very responsible environmentally. And so they created a program in Chicago, one of the suburbs, um, where if you had a Canon camera Mm -hmm. and something was wrong with it, you would return it. And they they had a group, a small group of about 20 people with intellectual disabilities. They worked with a service provider to do this. And they um, decided dismantled the cameras. They figured out which pieces were still good, which ones could be fixed, and which ones could be responsibly disposed of. And they had great success with this program. They made between 16 to $19 million the first year, which was a win. But then Canon, um, like um, many other corporations, they look globally at how well each of the plants have done throughout the world. And they noticed that this plant in Chicago, their productivity had gone up across the board by about 35%. The only difference was a small group of people with intellectual disabilities that Canon had hired to do a job. And they started interviewing the employees, and the employees said, it makes me really proud to work for Canon. So it raised all boats. Everybody went up. This 7,000-person plant outside Chicago, it has been an amazing, amazing success story, not only for Canon, but then Walgreens came in and said, what a good idea. How about if we do this in our distribution centers? And then Best Buy and UPS and FedEx are going to Walgreens saying, and all of this started, including the Walgreens amazing model, right here in Chicago. We're talking with Deborah Rue. She's a disability inclusion strategist. She's got a book coming out. It's called Uncovering Hidden Human Capital, How Leading Corporations Leverage Multiple Abilities in Their Workforce. Do you think that when it comes to companies, uh, not so much Canon and Walgreens, but maybe smaller, mid-sized companies, that when it comes to hiring people with differing abilities, do you find that there's still a tendency to have that population undertake what might be considered menial, repetitive tasks. I always wonder about that because, you know, are our employers just doing that because of an assumption that they're making about the abilities beyond the disability? 
Right. Uh, we abs- we definitely see that being the case. And mm-hmm. we see many people with disabilities being underemployed. And sometimes when I'm talking to employers about this topic and giving them strategies and stuff, they'll say, well, um, you know, well, we don't know that we're going to employ people with disabilities. And I remind them, you already have people with disabilities working for you. And only 20% of people with disabilities are born with disabilities, like my daughter, born with Down syndrome. At the rest, 80%, we acquire disabilities. That's a big number. That's a yeah, big percentage. Yeah, 80% of. Because, you know, we are, we're in these fragile bodies and things happen to us. But it doesn't mean that we can't continue to contribute to our workforce, maybe in very innovative ways now. But is, has that been a, do you find that still a hard sell for business owners to, to go beyond that, that old thinking, if you will? I, I do think it's still a hard sell. And so what's happening in our beautiful United States of America is that the litigation is way, way, way up over these activities. People are getting sued for not employing, for not having accessible websites. Litigation is way up. And so it's no longer, um, should you employ people with disabilities, you have no choice. You have no choice to make things accessible to us because we legislate and we litigate in the United States. So it's how do you do it? Which, you know, one reason why I'm here is JVS Chicago, which is a partner to employers. And sometimes you really do need a partner, whether you're small, medium, or a large business, to be successful at this. But you have to do it now. I want to get back to that 80%, Deborah, because that's, that's, a, that's a pretty big percentage. And something you said earlier that there could be people with a disability in your workforce that, that you may not even know about. And so I'm wondering, you know, it seems like uh, if you think of, other disabilities, things like bipolar, right. uh, other mental health issues, it still seems to be, I guess, pretty taboo to go to your boss and say, look, I'm having a crisis. I, I need to take the day off. Does that need to change too? It does need to change. I, I remember speaking to a gentleman that was very high up in the federal government, mm-hmm. and he had MS, and he had gotten to the point where it was really starting to cause him significant problems, and it's progressive. And I said, well, ha-, and he was working a little bit in the disability field for the federal government, and I said, well, have you disclosed it? And he said, oh, no, no, I'm not going to tell anybody, because then they're going to think that I'm not capable, or they're going to pity me, and so society has to change our minds about what people can and cannot do. I'll give you another example, autism. As people fight for the rights for people with autism, many of those being people with autism themselves, Mm -hmm. there's one group that says you can cure autism. Well, I would like to say, what if um, people with autism weren't broken? They just are using different parts of their brain and there's value to society for that. How about if we look at it like that? Can we improve um, people's lives and help them not, you know, learn better and, and do all kind of things like that? Yes. But why do we assume that because my daughter was born with an extra chromosome, that she's broken. Or even worse, as some people have said out on social media, that she didn't even deserve to be born. That's ridiculous. (laughs) Where do you see the most uh, advancement in terms of, I guess, uh, people with disabilities who, and again, I'm thinking of going back to the original question of what uh, what, what you think of when you think of disabled. Uh, Where do you see the most advancement for people with a certain disability? Are you seeing that uh, it's easier for people with autism who are on the spectrum or uh, folks like your daughter? We, we talked about uh, the blind unemployment rate, which is, right. seems to be pretty high still. So, it is very yeah. high. Where do you see hope? Well, the I would say the part of the community that's probably having the best success are people with physical disabilities, like somebody in a wheelchair. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of Americans can say, oh, just because they're in a wheelchair doesn't mean they can't add value. But when you start including a, talking about employees that are blind or deaf, I think it's really tough really tough for the deaf community because they're so smart. You know, they're a a range of people like anybody else, but they communicate in a different language, and not everybody knows that language. And so we're seeing some progress with intellectual disabilities. We're seeing progress with physical disabilities. There's a huge problem employing qualified people that are deaf and qualified people that are blind and even qualified people that have mobility, you know, impairments. And, of course, mental health. Employers are terrified of the mental health, even though many of us 
have mental health disabilities. So having said all that, I, I do want to leave people with, with some advice uh, from you before we let you go. What, what are some simple steps that any company, any organization uh, can take to, to work better with the disabled or get more disabled workers on, on their staffs? Well, the good news, because we're in the United States, is there's so many wonderful resources, and a lot of them are paid by our governments, our state governments, and mm-hmm. our federal government. So the first thing I would do to make sure you understand all the multidimensional parts of this is I would work with organizations like JVS Chicago, and there's so many others out there as well. So I would get a partner that wants me as a business to be successful, that wants to bring me qualified candidates, that wants to help help me navigate, you know, what do I do during the recruitment process, the candidate, the onboarding, the training, the the retention. I would get some help. There's a lot of data out there. There's a um, Ask Jan, A-S-K-J-A-N.org. It's a wonderful organization that you can get access to for free, and they'll help you uh, um, accommodate employees with disabilities. There's a start from Deborah Rue. She's a disability inclusion strategist. She's the author of the forthcoming book, Uncovering Hidden Human Capital, How Leading Corporations Leverage Multiple Abilities in Their Workforce. Thanks so much for stopping by. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. We're going to take a break. When we come back, WBEZ's Jen White shares the story of a military veteran turned mixed media artist. Don't go anywhere. Well, when artist and sculptor Eric Garcia was a kid growing up in Albuquerque, New Mexico, he used to build makeshift forts from the pillows of his mother's sofa. And the games he played inside those forts were inspired by the movies and TV that he loved. Yo, Joe! We'll fight for freedom wherever there's trouble. G.I. Joe is there. G.I. Joe! Like a lot of kids in the 1980s, Eric Garcia watched G.I. Joe, Rambo, and the A-Team. Warfare was like a game. I gravitated to these very glorified renditions of what it meant to play with guns, to, to go fight for some cause. Garcia eventually joined the military, serving in the Air Force from 1997 to 2002 and was stationed in New Mexico, Greece, and Italy. Now, he never saw combat, but later... As an artist, he began reflecting on his journey from a war-obsessed kid to a senior airman in the U.S. Air Force. In a new exhibition called Operation Mom's Couch, Garcia traces his personal journey. The show opened Friday at the National Veterans Art Museum on Chicago's northwest side. And WBEZ host and anchor Jennifer White was there for the opening. She joins me now. Hello there. Hello again. So we're going to hear some more excerpts from your interview with Eric in a minute. And we're going to talk to someone from the museum. But first, tell me a little bit more about Eric. Well, in his work, Eric really tries to connect the dots between historical themes and modern social questions. And he works across mediums, paintings, sculpture, and he says he's mostly inspired by Mexican muralists, Francisco Goya and Guadalupe Posada. Um, He also marries the Baroque style with uh, with the kind of art you'd see in comic books. Uh So it's a very interesting marriage and and it was a lot of fun to go see the, the exhibit. Yeah, I love the title of the show, yeah. Operation Mom's Couch. As you mentioned, it's mixed media. What what does it look like? What's the experience? So when you walk in, you find yourself in a room and you're surrounded by different panels. Mm-hmm. So there's a mural that basically goes all the way around the room. All of the painting is done in green, in the sort of military green that that you the know on ring, side. Yeah, yeah you, you know on side. And when you walk in, the first thing you see is a definition of the word nest. And that panel then asks what kind of animal would make a nest like this. So oh, in the wow. center of the room is a huge sculpture that you look at it, it looks like a barricade at first, but then it sort of evolves into a nest and it's made out of toy uh, wooden weapons. And there's a depiction of Eric right in the center. And, and he uses a, a question related to this idea of a nest as kind of a, a scaffolding for the show and the artwork. Let's take, so let's take a listen to a little bit of the conversation with Garcia about this idea of nest. So, Eric, when you enter the exhibition, the first panel you see gives the viewer a definition of the word nest. And the panel then asks, what kind of animal would make a nest like this? Why was this a question you chose as a framework for the exhibition? Well, it's interesting. When I was making 
this nest and I first put it in the gallery space, uh, one of the um, workers there at the National Veterans Art Museum had brought their daughter into into the space and and she saw the nest and and she immediately replied what kind of animal would make such a nest and and I thought that was really um poignant of 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 what what I was creating here and like what kind of beast what kind of 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 animal or monster would create a nest made out of weapons so I like that and that's why I put it there cuz the, the the nest itself is is, a, is an exaggerated uh, a metaphor of our society. It's a nest built of toy weapons. And what does that say when we have a habitat or an environment that nurtures this kind of culture? So, so I thought it was poignant that I would put that little phrase in there. What kind of animal would be creating this, this type of habitat? Now, the title of the exib- exhibit, Operation Mom's Couch, what does that mean for you? So my mom's couch when I was growing up was a place where I watched war movies, is where I played war video games, read war comics, where I mimicked battle scenes, war scenes. So that was like a, a that was like a microcosm or a microscopic personal look of this nest. It was it was it was it was it was, it was a place where I was nurtured into um, the glorification of war. And, uh, and and almost it was an incubator of why I joined the military. It was it was a place where I was nurtured into this this understanding of militarism. Um, so uh, my Operation Mom's Couch is, is is a personal take on on my own evolution of why I went to the military. But I think it's a, a bigger look at our society in general, how it become very militarized and violent. That is artist and sculptor Eric Garcia talking to WBEZ anchor and host Jen White, who's with me here in the studio. She checked out his exhibition, Operation Mom's Couch, when it opened on Friday. That show, by the way, is at the National Veterans Art Museum in Portage Park until August 20th. You know, Tony, you hear Eric talking about that connection with his personal experience and the television shows he watched Mm -hmm. growing up as a kid. And it made me wonder what he thinks about what's available to kids now in the media. Well, specifically in video games, I, I'm very concerned. I think these hyper-realization of, of, of combat playing some of these video games scares me because it, it, I don't know if this is still a question that's, that's, that's being asked right now is how numb are we getting to, to, to violence because of, of, of interacting? We can, we can now um, shoot a bunch of it from people virtually through a, through a video game, and it looks super realistic. And then the, the, the other part is that these video games, these same games that we're playing in our, in our homes, on our couches, are now being used as tools by the military itself to, to train our, our armed forces. So those kind of aspects kind of concern me. So, Jen, you took in the whole piece. I mean, the nests, the illustrations. What what feeling did you walk away with? Well, it's interesting because when you walk in the room, you can hear very softly some of those theme songs playing, ah, the A-Team, uh-huh. G.I. Joe. And I had this very visceral reaction because I watched those shows growing up, and you almost <laughs> automatically go into the sort of march step when you hear <laughs> that, that theme music. And... It made me think about those shows weren't necessarily marketed to me as a girl, but I had brothers. We watched those shows together. It's on a loop. It's on a loop. And it also made me think about the shows that were marketed to me, the toys that were marketed to me, and how that kind of shaped my idea of what it meant to be a girl. So there is is, um, an image of the artist, Eric Mm -hmm. Garcia, inside the nest. What, What does that look like? It's interesting because the nest is massive and... In the very center, you see this tiny, to, you know, scale-wise, tiny depiction of Eric hunkered behind his mom's couch holding mm-hmm. a, what looks like a toy rifle. Mm-hmm. And he looks so small in comparison to, to the weapons. And I, I wondered if he grew up feeling fearful as a child. I don't know if fear influenced me as a child um, because because. Weapons and 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 the use of of guns was very natural to me. I grew up in in a, in a in a culture in a family that would go shooting rifles at the ranch. That would um, I always had a BB gun when I was small, so it wasn't that much of fear so much as I understand it now as an adult to be surrounded by so many 
weapons, to, to, to have these different laws coming into place where there's so many people can be armed at one time, these, these new regulations that, that weapons can be carried on the university, that, that, uh, that all these um, um, powerful, high-powerful rifles can be sold, sold so easily, that the, that the military has now given these, these, these excess supply to, to, the, to their police forces to use domestically. That's, I think that's where the fear comes in. As people come through the exhibit, are there other questions you, you hope they ask themselves? I hope they ask themselves, you know, how how do they feel personally? Do 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 they feel like they live in this nest as well, or or do they do they fear this beast that has created this nest? I hope they ask the, these these bigger questions of uh, how are they influencing their own children and their own um, way of 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 growing and, and nurturing it in our society. What 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 video games are they playing? What what movies are they watching? How are they consuming? this glorification of, of war. Eric, the center of the room, as you mentioned before, is dominated by this nest. And inside that structure, you have the names of different conflicts. But you also have Black Lives Matter and, and some other terms that are, that are not related necessarily to a military operation. Why integrate that into the structure? So inside the structure, I have different military comp- uh, conflicts that, that I've been aware of since I was born. So, so from 1977 on, these are different conflict, conflicts that the United States have been involved in. And I also included not only foreign conflicts, but conflicts here domestically in the United States. Now, it, it, they does, it does not say Black Lives Matter inside, but it does say 16 shots. It does say um, Ferguson. Because I do include those as conflicts within the United States that are that are heavily tied with militarism. If you look at the, the circumstance that happened in Ferguson, all that militarized vehicles they were ha- that the, the police were using was the 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 offshoot of of, of the militarization in Iraq. After we we, we started bringing the, all those forces back to the United States, all that equipment, all those weapons were then used domestically on our own people. Uh, and Ferguson is a prime example of that. So how much of this exhibit do you think was driven by events that are happening here in Chicago? Oh, I just think it coincides perfectly with what's happening in Chicago with with um, everything that's happening, all the um, police violence, but not only here in Chicago specifically, but what's happening in the United States with the mass shootings, with gang violence, police violence. It's... it's um, I think that it was a perfect timing that I would that I would build this nest at this time to 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 visually show that this is our habitat that we were living in. Mixed media artist Eric Garcia talking about his exhibition Operation Mom's Couch. It just opened Friday and is at the National Veterans Art Museum through August 20th. You've been listening to excerpts of an interview he did with WBEZ's Jen White, who's here with me in the studio. And Jen, also joining us, is someone to talk more about the museum itself, Destiny Oitzinger. She's the museum's gallery coordinator. Welcome, Destiny. Hi, thank you for having me. You know, I have to admit that the the name of the museum Mm -hmm. threw me for a loop until I started digging, and I was like, Oh, that's right. It used to be the Vietnam Veterans Museum, right. which was south uh, on Indiana uh, when it first opened back, well, around the early 80s. And, and now it's on the, the northwest side. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. We moved um, at the end of 2012. What's the mission of the museum, especially now that the, the, the word Vietnam is out of the title? Yeah. Uh, the mission of the museum is to collect and preserve combat-inspired art. Um, the big change that you're talking about was when we began to continue to collect and exhibit artwork from um, artists who had served in conflicts after the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. And so as that, as obviously war continued on and we continued to participate participate in these conflicts, um, Nonetheless, art, more art was created out of those conflicts. We heard we heard about uh, the kind of art that is in Eric Garcia's exhibition. What other kind of artwork is there? All kinds of different artwork. We have photography, sculpture, uh, painting, um, uh, prints, drawings. You name it. We have some artwork. You know, Destiny, and and seeing Eric's piece, I was wondering how you go about. Uh, soliciting artwork. Do do veterans come to you, or or do you go to them? A little bit of both. Um, 
we have an art committee at the art museum and um uh, for example, Eric turned in a proposal uh, to have a show at the museum about a year, year and a half ago. Uh, it was re- reviewed by our art committee, and we felt it was very uh, poignant and um, on the mark, and so we chose to schedule it. Are any of the committee members veterans themselves? Many of them are. Most yeah. of them, in fact. I'm kind of in the minority. I myself am not a veteran. So what, what role do you think the museum plays in the veterans community? It is a way for both veterans and civilians to understand war and express themselves. Um, So one of the things that we address is this dialogue about conflict that our country and many countries are involved in. And um, what we want to do then is help share that dialogue. So through through the artwork at our museum, you're going to see this experience of war uh, like you wouldn't see anywhere else. It's through the eyes of a veteran told from their perspective. But Eric poses one question, but then you come on the other end of, of seeing his work with other questions. So how do you continue that conversation? How do you move it forward? Uh, well, we continue to show a variety of exhibitions, but we also have programming um, that we that we um, uh, set up for people of all ages to, to continue on that dialogue. We're talking with Destiny Oitzinger. She is the coordinator, gallery coordinator at the National Veterans Art Museum. We're Talking about it here on the morning shift. Jen White is also in studio. There, in addition to rotating shows, there's also the permanent exhibit that you've brought back. And this is based on Tim O'Brien, someone who served in Vietnam. His book that came out, I believe, in 1990, uh, The Things That They Carried. What do visitors experience with that, especially since his book is really trying to pin down, as he said, the truth about war? Yes. Uh, so that's a really wonderful exhibit. Um, we get people of all ages going through. We get a lot of student tours um, who are reading the book in class or studying the Vietnam War. But then we also get many Vietnam veterans and their families that come through. And that's just another facilitator of conversation. And so um, people who served in the Vietnam War will see things in that exhibit and, and the images on the wall and say, I had this, I didn't have this. And it'll kind of start to um, open up this, this, um, this storytelling. And so uh, Tim O'Brien's book is very much about how to tell a true war story. It's wonderful to watch when our exhibit helps people tell their story. And how do people interact with that exhibit specifically? It's actually uh, one of the few exhibits at the museum that you can handle and touch and try on things. Um, For example, we have a flak jacket. We have the helmet. We have a a weighted rucksack to nearly um, 90 pounds for people to try on to get a real uh, feeling of what it was like to serve in the Vietnam War. We've been talking with the gallery coordinator of the National Veterans Art Museum, Destiny Oitzinger, about some of the things you can experience at the museum, including Eric Garcia's uh, latest exhibition and the ongoing exhibition inspired by Tim O'Brien's book. Thanks so much for stopping by. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. So last week on the program, we asked you, the listeners, to suggest some things that Jen should see or do now that she's moved to Chicago to join WBEZ. We got one call about the great view when you walk the bridge from the modern wing at the Art Institute to Millennium Park. You'll have a view of the loop to one side, the lake on the other. And you may remember that Rick Hogan promised to take Jen for a bourbon. Well, Carlos from Humboldt Park had another suggestion. I think Jennifer should know the taste of Malort. She should sidle up to the bar and order a shot fearlessly and down it. It is in this way she will taste what Chicago is all about at its very base. Yeah, you got to be brave for that one. And Chicago being the food town that it is, George from Hyde Park passed along these places to eat. The first one is Calumet Fisheries, which is at 95th Street and like the end of Lakeshore Drive or the bridge. And I would recommend that because as you take Lakeshore through there, I would recommend going down Lakeshore so you go through the, the old U.S. Steel um, plant to really see the magnitude of what Chicago used to do. And the other one would be Lem's Barbecue on 75th and Calumet, just to really see 
uh, and what I believe to be a culinary institution and a true like African American beauty. I mean, Chicago's full of those, but I would recommend going there. Okay, so Jen is still here with me in the studio. Uh, Jen, I mentioned you, you had to you have to have a lot of courage to do the Malort idea. And and the, the, the other ideas, the one that George mentioned, the thing about the fish house on, mm-hmm. ca- in Calumet, those are fast disappearing. When I was a kid, there were these little fish houses dotted along the, the southern part of the Chicago River. Well, considering the fact that um, when people mention Malort, it's often followed by either a grimace or a shudder, I, I am definitely <laughs> leaning more towards the fishery. Or lambs, maybe? Or perhaps that. All right, there you go. Still lots for Jen to explore, and I want to thank everyone who shared ideas for how to best enjoy Chicago. You can always call our hotline with suggestions for the show, topics you'd like to hear more about, interviews or news stories that like us to follow up on, you can leave a message at 855-848-5551. Again, that number, 855-848-5551. Jen, before I let you go, what are you digging up for us next week? Well, I have my eyes on um, a new production that's coming to Chicago, so maybe something from the theater scene. All righty. That'll be next week with Jen White here on The Morning Shift. Well, the Oscars may be over, but there's still a lot of great movies in theaters. Coming up after the break, we'll talk with the director of the coming-of-age story, Henry Gamble's Birthday Party, which is playing at the Cisco. Stick around. It's the morning shift here on WBEZ. I'm Tony Sarabia. Well, Chicago-based filmmaker Stephen Cohn is uh, getting a reputation of sorts, someone who is known for his coming-of-age stories. His latest work is called Henry Gamble's Birthday Party, and it's a story that touches on faith, doubt, sexuality and identity themes that have shown up in other Cone films like The Wise Kids and This Afternoon. Henry Gamble's birthday party is playing tonight and tomorrow night at the Gene Siskel Film Center. Stephen Cohn joins me now. Hi there. Welcome to The Morning Shift. Hi. Thanks for having me. Okay, let me lay out the the premise of this film, give people an idea. Uh, Henry Gamble is turning 17 years old. His dad is a pastor at a mega church in a Chicago suburb. I think it's called King's Peace. Is the name of the church? Yeah. Yes, uh-huh. and they uh, they live. They have some pretty nice digs. I mean, they they live in this really looks like a big house. They have a beautiful pool, mm-hmm. and so Henry has invited some of his friends, and, and some of those friends include people that go to church with him. Others uh, do not, and there are some adults there. So that's that's how the story, uh, the, the plot of the story, if you will. As I mentioned, you're kind of known for these coming of age films, but but what's different is that you you look at these situations through through the lens of faith. Yeah, well that's the the world I grew up in. My dad's a, a Southern Baptist minister in South Carolina, so I grew up in the Carolinas, um going to church three times a week and uh so I knew these people and you know, I had the church friends and the unchurched friends and and very often there is that sort of, you know, they occasionally come together and and there's this sort of tension between the people who have a certain set of priorities and and the other you know uh, set of people who have a diff- an, another set of priorities. So it's an interesting world to navigate, especially in that really vulnerable sort of adolescent period. Yeah, teenage years. Well, speaking yeah. of that, there there is a scene where that happens. So Henry's as as we've been saying uh, invited some friends over. This is a scene where in the in the pool and Henry's friend John asks Christine uh, about her faith, and it does seem a little bit awkward uh, for for Henry. Let's take a listen. So, are you, uh, are you churched? Am I churched? Yeah, do you, like, you know, go to church? Oh, uh, no, I don't go to church. <laughs> oh, do you, like, not believe in anything, or...? Uh, no, I mean, I believe, like, in a lot of things. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, um, well, like what? Yeah, like what? <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I don't, I don't know, um, like, like, love and kindness and, like, friendship. Yeah, but I mean, like, you know, God-wise. Oh, God-wise. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Probably not. Oh, uh, well, uh, you guys are totally welcome at King's Peace anytime. Um, yeah, totally. Just, uh, give it some thought, you know? Some serious thought, though. For sure. Great. (laughs) Think about it. (laughs) Talk to you guys later. Bye. Godwise, the musical. Okay, you know what? We are seriously going to burn. Do you think we're going to burn? What? You heard me. I don't know. What? Yes, you do. <laughs>
There you go. That is a scene from the film Henry Gamble's Birthday Party. Joining me on the morning shift is the filmmaker Stephen Cohn. So again, there's that that added element of of faith. The you know we all as teenagers have these awkward moments. But then introducing faith, it's something that perhaps a lot of people don't think about. It's certainly something that filmmakers who maybe didn't grow up within a household of faith don't really explore a lot. Yeah, I was I was mentioning in the Q&A at the Cisco uh, last night how it's it's sort of an extra added burden, this layer of, of, of religious pressure on top of the already very awkward um, uh, sort of sexual... Uh, coming of age that takes place in adolescence, so it's 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 odd enough to be struggling with uh, sexual identity and and desire and where to put your feelings, but on top of that, to have uh, this sort of like old school religious uh, stricture in place is um, it's it just adds, I think, to the pressure and and sends these kids sort of just like sort of uh, spiraling and head spinning, and you know, it's a. It's an interesting place to be. It seems like Henry doesn't have too many questions, though, about his faith in terms of his dedication to faith. It, right. I mean, there's the opening scene where he's had a sleepover with his best friend, Gabe, and, and they're talking. Uh, it's a sexual conversation. <laughs> and, and you know, uh, before they fall asleep, Henry, uh, Henry prays. So yes. that certainly doesn't seem to be an issue w- with him. It seems that his issue is more about his sexual identity right um well he yeah he's not, he's still in a place where i feel like he um it, it's interesting during those years that th- there are things that that sit comfortably together if you don't think about them too hard do you know what i'm saying so he is able to sort of navigate that world but he's coming to a place where he's feeling pressure turning 17 becoming an adult to actually maybe acknowledge a deeper identity and a deeper sexual identity so um, there's something strangely safe about those late night sleepovers, you know. There and and until you start to connect it to a broader identity, and I think that's what that's what he's starting to embrace in the sort of bookended scene and the, the final scene when we come back around. The first scene, I'm actually just realizing this now as I talk about it. But the first <laughs> scene is sort of an in the moment thing, and then the the final scene is much more about how is he going to carry this forward. Yeah, he seems to have an epiphany. We don't want to give away too much. Right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you said that, Stephen, that you grew up in a religious household. Your dad was a Baptist minister. How much of the work that you do is a reflection on, on you growing up? And, and how much did you deal with um, faith versus sexual identity? I mean, was that a, a struggle for you? Um, I, you know, my struggles growing up just as like as a queer Southern Baptist preacher's kid, my, my it's, oddly, my struggles were more... Uh, in the area of faith and religion and not so much sexuality. I don't know if... I I actually had a very supportive family, and by supportive I don't mean sort of overtly, actively supporting whatever I chose to do with my life, but uh, had the wisdom uh, and the wherewithal to sort of step back and let me figure out my own stuff. So there wasn't a lot of condemnation of... Of uh, of queerness or homosexuality in in the household. If anything, it's just grappling with larger issues of... of, um, Faith and and doubt, which is you know why they're very often linked in in the movies. But it in in my real life, probably um, I'm much more connected to Bree in The Wise Kids, the sort of questioning the film before the, the, this, the, yeah, yeah, the questioning um, preacher's daughter than than some of these other things. The reason these are ensemble pieces is because I grew up just observing these wide swaths of of evangelical congregations my entire life and so a lot it's just um and I have a deep love for these people in this community and so wanting to try to get as much in as possible um I sort of grew up in an ensemble film <laughs> you know <laughs> so I guess it makes sense that, that that's what I would be telling where did the idea for this particular film come from did it did it spring from an original that had nothing to do with the finished product um there's two there's two answers to that um one is that I had another discarded screenplay that um I, I don't want to get into it too much, but it was called Porn Ministry, and it was going to be about two ministers who go to the San Fernando Valley and minister to share the gospel with the the adult entertainment industry. Um, it was kind of a comedy, but I realized quickly I wasn't in love with it, and I was probably never going to make it. it That's too bad because it sounds like a great film. It, <laughs> it sounds a like a great film, but you'd have to read it to see what I'm saying. 
Um, but w- what that movie did was that was a movie largely about the um, abuse of and exploitation of sexuality, but it culminated back at home with a pool party for one of the minister's sons. And that, to me, was the most interesting scene in that film because it was a movie about exploitation and skin and flesh and what's going on in the San Fernando Valley uh, sort of contrasted with... Um, with this final scene of, of a bunch of evangelicals gathering to take off other clothes, which is the best way to describe this movie, probably. Um, but I was like, well, you know, maybe this is the, the whole movie. But And then there's the voice in the back of your head that says, oh, you've already tackled these themes with the wise kids. Why do this again? And my answer to that is, why, you know, wise kids, was sort of there was a sort of distance there. It didn't tackle sexuality and desire in a really direct way. So I was interested in, in, in looking at it with a... a um, a little bit more of an intimate look, uh, sort of harder hitting. The Wise Kids lets the characters off the hook in a lot of ways, and I also wanted to do something that was just a touch more of an indictment because there is a lot of really sort of tragic hypocrisy going on in that world too, and I didn't want to leave that behind. Yeah, that comes out. There's also condemnation perhaps in a subtle type where one of the characters, she is uh, married to a youth pastor, and there's a conversation about uh, being gay and and how it's clumped together with criminality, addiction, <laughs> right. and she just says it in a sort of offhanded way. You know that that all of these things go together. There are moments like that in the film, and it got me to thinking about well, first about audience, right? Who who is the audience for this film, and are is is there any fear or concern that there are moments in the film that to an outsider? who has ideas about Christianity, specifically evangelical Christianity, uh, that some of the scenes might confirm their ideas slash stereotypes. Well, some of the characters may, and just as some characters in actual churches would confirm their fears yeah. about that world. But what I hope uh, what I hope doesn't go unnoticed is that the entire movie is about a central family of four born-again Christians, and, and they actually are really lovely people. You know, he's got a Christian mother who's struggling with her own identity right. and and, it, and seems to be actively encouraging of his his honest identity. So I, I hope people don't overlook the, the fact that the Gambles are Christians too and that um, I think the ratio of judgmental hypocrites to honest, authentic, searching people at this party is is probably very close to the ratio that you would find in an actual church. Or anywhere, perhaps. Or anywhere, yeah. perhaps, which is why I think Jewish people have identified with the film and people of other faiths and environments. I want to play another clip. This is uh, there, There's a, another character that doesn't get a lot of attention, but boy, some, some powerful scenes. His name is Ricky, and uh, his dad has died, and, and he comes to the party with his mom, who brings a, a box of wine, which is uh, pretty daring for this crowd. Right, right. But um, here is uh, the youth pastor, the youth minister, Keith. He's talking with the associate pastor, Larry, who, by the way, is played by Francis Guinan, uh, talking about Ricky. I think we got Ricky all worked up. What's that mean? Oh, well, we're not sure if it's best for him to chaperone camp this year. Oh, why? Because the pill incident? To be honest, I'm not convinced it was suicide. I, I think the guy just likes his pills. <laughs> well, I don't know. And then there was the incident at camp last year. What happened at camp last year? Oh, I thought you... What are we talking about here? I think maybe now well, is not the best time. Come on, what happened? I guess there was a situation in the showers. What kind of situation? Well, according to a couple of our guys, Ricky had a, um, he was showering with a couple of the boys, and they thought that it seemed like he may have been aroused. Oh, boy. Yeah, so. Man. Sure are a lot of stories. You know, you just kind of hang on those final words, Stephen, from Francis Guinan. There sure are a lot of stories. And, and toward the end, he says something else that if you're not really paying attention, just kind of goes by, and he says, we're doing it all wrong. I mean, he he had some, some powerful words there. Yeah, I mean, well, there's a, that, um, that's a world that's in transition, and I think um, our conversation now would, will, would and will be very different five years from now in terms of the, the evolution of, of um, 
the openness to the the variety of colors and nuances of sexuality and identity in the church and it, it, you know i think the church is realizing that there's this whole segment of people that are actually actually have a spiritual longing and want to be a part of these congregations and for so long have have had to um be dishonest about themselves in order to be let in mm-hmm. which is a very screwed up sort of thing so i think the church is changing and coming around to and the country coming around to to this, these beautiful people. A couple of images in the movie. Water plays a big part. The, the whole party takes place around the pool. But there are, there are scenes when you're seeing the kids underwater. What, is, what does that represent? Um, well, I mentioned earlier that I, you know, the sleepover, I think, is a very safe, is kind of a safe chamber for Henry to let out his desires. There's something about being in your bedroom as a teenager uh, after like 11 o'clock at night and every, when everything seems permissible and safe and even clean. <laughs> and uh, I would compare that to the underwater. It's, it seems to be a place where they can go, where desires are permitted, mm-hmm. where you can be, where you can look and it's a safe uh, place and it's not sinful to sort of take in other people's bodies and your own personal, honest desires. So uh, I like to think of it as, as um, kind of a, 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 a nice, safe secret place for these kids to go. And there's music. I mean, not so much like John uh, John Hughes, where he uses, you know, they become soundtracks. But clearly, uh, Henry has a love of music. His mom understands that love. What role for you does music play for this film? And what role did it play for you as a teenager, as an adolescent growing up with, coming to terms with your identity? Yeah, it, you know, I... I uh, I've talked a little bit about how pop music when you're a teenager is, is in many ways it gives teenagers the spiritual ecstasy that they're seeking in church or that they're promised in church. And so for me growing up, you know, I had a lovely time at church, but music was where I, I found the sort of spiritual energy, the sort of transcendent thing that can kind of swoop in and save you when you're kind of a, a confused teenager. So yeah. that was that was Cole's way, the actor's way into Henry. I gave him a playlist. We talked a lot about how music really is the kids' church. The name of the film is Henry Gamble's Birthday Party, the filmmaker Stephen Cohn, a follow-up, if you will, to his 2011 film, The Wise Kids. Uh, it's showing, uh, this film that we're talking about, is showing tonight at the Gene Siskel Film Center and tomorrow night. And, and Thursday. Uh, and Thursday night. Yeah. Uh, and you should go see it. And I understand Francis Guinan might show up. Yeah, I think Q&A. he'll be there Thursday's Q&A. Yeah. Well, thanks for stopping by. Great film. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. Well, we just talked with filmmaker Stephen Cohn about his new movie. Pretty interesting job, huh? Making movies. For our Working Shift series, we're talking with people with interesting jobs. We've talked to a high school principal, a funeral director, a drag queen, and lots more. Is there a job you'd like us to profile as part of the series? Give us a call, 855-848-5551. Again, that number, 848-5551. Coming up tomorrow on the show, how Super Tuesday results could affect Illinois' March 15th primary and our weekly soul excursion with Reclaim Souls' Ayana Contreras. That's Wednesday, the morning shift here on WBEZ Chicago.